So yesterday, my alma mater, UNLV, experienced an unthinkable and horrific tragedy. I called Las Vegas and UNLV my home for four years, and my heart breaks for my fellow running rebels and the entire Las Vegas community. Now, while the facts of this tragedy are still forthcoming, I want to bring in my trusted friend and retired Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department lieutenant and founder of the Wounded Blue, Randy Sutton. Randy, you know, when this happened... The first person I thought of was you for many reasons. I know that you are, are so connected to UNLV, the Las Vegas community, and I'm hoping that you have a little bit of insight for us that maybe the rest of the mainstream media isn't covering at least yet. Well, I, I was involved in this. Tommy, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, yeah, I was uh, involved in reporting on this uh, yesterday from the, the the moment that it happened, I was notified by uh, some contacts uh, at, at Metro that this was taking place and uh, and began covering it uh, instantly. And I was it was in contact with police officers that were actually on the street there taking part in the uh, in the efforts there. So um, this is, it was another tragic shooting that uh, that took place, an active shooter. And of course, you you know, from my past history that I have I have. Um, experience with active shooters um in this situation it uh, uh this this suspect uh went in, went onto campus um with armed with uh, a handgun and began shooting people um he uh re from my my contacts uh he reloaded uh at, at least one time uh shot four people, killed three of those. One of those is in critical condition. But then what took place um, shows the, the the professionalism and the courage of law enforcement because a UNLV police officer uh, confronted the suspect, engaged in a gun battle, and killed the suspect. This happened before he could unleash even more horror on these innocent people. From what we know so far, and I, I'm I'm happy that Las Vegas has been so transparent. <coughs> Sometimes in the past, we haven't had a lot of transparency, whether it be the horrible massacre at the Harvest Festival in Las Vegas several years ago, or even here in Nashville with the Covenant School shooting. We haven't been given a lot of information about the shooter, the motive. That's still going to come out. But from what we're hearing so far, it's this is somebody who wanted a job at UNLV, was denied a job at UNLV. He'd been a professor in other schools and other places, living in Las Vegas, and what it sounds like is he was coming back to exact revenge for not getting that job, a workplace violence type of situation. And from what we're hearing so far, the victims, not students, but rather faculty and staff members, from what you're hearing, um, what can you tell us? So even though it's only been one day since this occurred, uh, the motive appears to be that this individual was denied employment at UNLV. He was a college professor in uh, other places and wanted a job at UNLV, but was turned down. And so he went to the, the business college of the university and apparently targeted people in, in the business college for his attack. Um, you know, yesterday there was a lot of conjecture going on because, you know, without having any um, information, you know, there's there was a great deal of conjecture and 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 fear that this might have been 
a uh, uh, some type of ideological attack. And if there's any if there's any you know silver lining in this, it's that this was an individual who was exacting revenge because of his own failings in uh, in in getting hired. But um, uh, so the the motive appears to be appears to have, have been uh, just that. Yeah. I had several classes in that building where the shooting took place. And for those that aren't familiar with it, I mean, it really is like a funnel. So this could have been far worse. Um, it's also very close to the student union where people gather outside in Las Vegas at UNLV all the time. So this could have been far worse. Obviously, for the lives lost, this is still a horrific tragedy. And the response of the campus police and, and Metro was, of course, as many other law enforcement agencies, fantastic and heroic. But I, I want to go back as well to some of the rumors yesterday, because we were getting a lot of conflicting information. For a time there, it, it seemed like there was a second suspect that they had holed up somewhere. That was some of the reports we were hearing. Do you know why people were, were saying that? Was there any evidence to back that up or was that just people pontificating because they didn't know what else to do? Well, Tom, you know that, that these situations are very fluid and they're very confusing. Um, there was an individual who was taken into custody or detained at UNLV at about the same time. Now, um, I don't know what they were detained for, but of course, the conjecture was there might be a second subject also. There was another incident that took place down the street that appears to be um, non-related, but the the uh, conjecture at the time was that there was a barricaded suspect at a at a hotel not far from uh, UNLV. So the and for my police sources, even they were thinking that there might be some connection. But you know that's that's what happens when you have. Uh, an event like this, there's all kinds of of uh, uh, of information that's coming in until it's vetted. Uh, you just don't know what the what the what the truth is. Also, um, there were other people that were hospitalized, and and the original thought was that these people were also shot. They were not. There was uh, th uh, three other additional victims that um, that actually suffered panic attacks during the event and they were hospitalized as well. So um, it was, uh, it was, there was a, just a, a massive confusion, which is normal for mm -hmm. an event like this. And, and by the way, I don't know if you're aware of this, but he not only opened fire inside that building, he also opened fire outside by the student union. Um, and I, that, apparently that's when he was taken down by uh, UNLV PD. So uh, the, the loss of life could have been devastating here. Um, and uh, uh, it's only because of the courage and professionalism of law enforcement that the, the loss of life was not much greater. For those that are unfamiliar with UNLV and UNLV's campus, I remember I, I was at UNLV not long ago. I graduated in 2014. But that campus is huge. It's sprawling. It's not far from the Las Vegas Strip. Of course, you've got the Thomas and Mack Center. This week, we've got National Finals Rodeo. For anybody who's in Las Vegas or went to UNLV, you know it's the most hectic time of the year for, for our campus. A lot of people in the campus. I remember going to school at UNLV. Um, 
I wouldn't say the campus is not secure, but it's not the most secure place I've ever been. People are allowed to, you know, walk on campus. You don't really have to be verified to be there. There were, uh, in my time there, there were homeless people that would eat at our dining commons on a, on a daily basis that had no business being there. They were not students, but it's essentially an open campus. The areas around UNLV, not necessarily the safest environment. I remember coming from South Dakota, and I remember the McDonald's right by UNLV when I first got there. You had to get a key to go to the bathroom, and I was terrified because I have never experienced that kind of situation coming from where I come from. But can you speak a little bit, Randy, about UNLV itself? The UNLV campus is is a very large campus, and it's not an isolated campus. That is, it, it literally is within the the center of the urban area of the of the the city of Las Vegas. So it's it's not um, a fortress unto itself. Um, anybody can basically walk in off of the uh, the corresponding streets on all sides of the campus. So that presents a major challenge when it comes down to security. Um, UNLV has its own police department, but like many police agencies across the country, it is understaffed. They have a tough time um, hiring people, just like other agencies across the country. They, too, are feeling the brunt of this challenge to law enforcement, this crisis, in uh, retention and also in recruitment. So uh, they're down uh, a number of officers. And to try and secure a major campus like this that that's, that literally sprawls over, over, over all these many, many blocks, it, it presents a, a major challenge. And, uh, uh, you know, you don't want to you don't want to make college of, or, or university a, uh, um, a, a jail, you know, so so it, you have to temper you have to temper security with the um, with the with the reality. And uh, and that, right. that presents a huge challenge to uh, to the university and the law enforcement. Well, Randy, we thank you as always for giving us some insight. Uh, I know that that Las Vegas is close to your heart. It's close to my heart as well. We're praying for everybody at UNLV and in Las Vegas. It's certainly not going to be an easy week for anybody, especially bringing up the trauma from what happened several years ago at the, the biggest massacre, really, in American history, um, biggest kind of terror event outside of 9-11. So thank you for being here, for breaking it down for us, and please give my best to everyone in Las Vegas. I appreciate that. And if I could say one other thing, Tommy, I'd like to, to talk about the trauma that the police officers are going to be facing as well as the students there. Um, you know, this will have a dramatic effect on the emotional health and emotional well-being of not just the students who, are, of course, are, are you know facing fear from this, but also from the first responders and the officers who uh, who want the officer who, who had to take a life. And no matter how justified you are in that, it, it plays uh, it plays heavily on your mind, but also the officers who had to who had to visualize that violent death scene. And so, uh, you know, I just want to make sure that that they know that the wounded blue is here for them. I made this offer to uh, the university yesterday, but uh, the organization, the Wounded Blue, which helps injured and disabled officers, reaches out to the to those officers. And if they are struggling, please connect with me, Randy at thewoundedblue.org. Randy, thank you for everything that you do at the Wounded Blue. It's an organization that obviously means the world to me, and I've been involved with you in the Wounded Blue for many years now. You guys do fantastic work. God bless you, and thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Tommy, and thanks, Merry Randy. Christmas. Merry Christmas to you as well.
All right, folks, debate four is in the books, and yes, Nikki Haley was as insufferable as ever, and everyone but Chris Christie knows it. Let's get into it, but first, in case you missed it. The only person more fascist than the Biden regime now is Nikki Haley, who thinks the government should identify every one of those individuals with an ID. That is not freedom, that is fascism. Chris, your version of foreign policy experience was closing a bridge from New Jersey to New York. Yeah. So do everybody a favor, just walk yourself off that stage, enjoy a nice meal, yeah. and get the hell out of this yeah, place. The fourth debate that you would be voted in the first 20 minutes as the most obnoxious blowhard in America. So <laughs> shut up for a Look at that. This is what I want people to understand. These people have, I mean, she has no idea what the hell the names of those provinces are, but she wants to send our sons and daughters and our troops and our military equipment to go fight it. Through look at the blank expression. She doesn't know the names of the provinces that she wants to actually fight for. You can put lipstick on a Dick Cheney. It is still a fascist neocon. You do not have the right to abuse your kids. This is cutting off their genitals. This is mutilating these minors. I, I signed it. You that. didn't. You killed it. I signed it. I we stood didn't. up for little girls. You didn't do it. We're talking about that trans issue. And Nikki Haley's campaign launch video sounded like a woke Dylan Mulvaney Bud Light ad talking about how she would kick in heels. Nikki, I don't have a woman problem. You have a corruption problem. And I think that that's what people need to know. Nikki is corrupt. This is a woman who will send your kids to die so she can buy a bigger house. Whoever said debates couldn't be fun without Donald Trump didn't see last night's debate. But joining me now to break it down is Battleground Live host Sean Parnell. Sean, I think the best debate thus far. I thoroughly enjoyed it. What's your initial take? Uh, me too. It was clearly the best moderated debate. And I think the candidates that were on that stage clearly benefited from having a field that had narrowed a little bit. And boy, Nikki Haley, even though she's not the front runner overall, I mean, they it was it was amazing to me to see both Vivek and, and DeSantis going after her in the way that they did thinking that she was the front runner and that what was what was so crazy to me is it seemed like Chris Christie's on that uh, his role on that stage was you know one to of course attack Donald Trump and that's what he said about the reason that he's in this race in the first place but also to protect Nikki Haley it seemed like he was her guard dog on that stage ultimately I think it didn't work but it was it was entertaining to say the least I thought it was wildly entertaining you know <laughs> here's the thing about Vivek I like what he says. I don't necessarily always find him to be the most genuine, but I think he speaks well, and I think his ideas, I agree with almost all of them, but his ability to take down Nikki Haley with no remorse, to me, is fantastic. As someone who personally really detests Nikki Haley, I think she is the <laughs> Hillary Clinton of the GOP. She's a fan of Hillary Clinton. I cannot stand her. But I felt like last night was very much a tag team like WWE with DeSantis and Vivek on one side and then Nikki Haley and Chris Christie on the other. It was like the rhinos versus the true patriots. And I really love to see it. I'm wondering, though, I've seen some of the initial reports, people saying that Nikki Haley didn't do well, but she's been doing better with independents or, or moderates. Do you think last night with the pile on is going to help her or hurt her when it comes to maybe moderate Republican voters more on the independent side? 
No, I, I don't. I mean, because I'll just tell you this about Nikki Haley. She is completely out of state, uh, out of step uh, with regards with regards to policy in general, but especially foreign policy as to where the Republican Party is right at this moment. And in the moment of the debate uh, for me was when Vivek put her on the spot about naming provinces that she wanted to send American troops to in eastern Ukraine. I mean, he exposed what I think is just a rot at the core of the establishment Republican Party, and that is stale talking points from the 1980s and 1990s. I mean, look, when Nikki Haley said we in order for us to prevent China from invading Taiwan, we have to first win the war in Ukraine. What? I mean, I'm telling you, there's some campaign consultant that told her to say that, maybe peace through strength. I don't know. But these neoconservative views are completely out of step with where the Republican Party is today. And when he put her on the spot, I mean, I would tell you that I wanted to hear an answer to that question because, look, it, it's absolutely relevant. 20 years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan based on the foreign policy beliefs of George W. Bush, Barack Obama, people like Nikki Haley, who have been pushing these neoconservative views on, on the American people and on the Republican Party for darn near 15 years, 20 years of failure. What do we have to show for Iraq uh, and Afghanistan? We lost in Afghanistan. Politicians surrendered that war. Thousands of Americans uh, killed. Tens of thousands of Americans wounded. Hundreds of thousands of Americans, Americans suffering from the Visible, invisible wounds of war, millions of Iraqis and Afghans dead. And for what? And Nikki Haley just trots out these same tired talking, but it's not just Nikki Haley, but Chris Christie as well. And their willingness to send American troops, American sons and daughters into the fight in most places where they don't even know they're going to send them. First of all, it's just abhorrent that any person that's running for office would send an American son and daughter who are our most precious resource to maybe go die in a place they don't even know where the hell it is. They couldn't find it on a map. But it just it just highlights for everyone in the Republican Party, moderates included, that <laughs> Nikki Haley might be all hat and no cattle, as they say in the South. Yeah. Well, you said a campaign consultant told her. I'd rather <laughs> believe it's probably Boeing or Lockheed Martin that told her that. But her job Fair depends point. on it. Her her job, the way that she actually makes money, depends on her wanting to bomb everyone. And, and when I look at her, when she's debating, when I look into her soulless little beady black eyes, I just see somebody <laughs> who wants to bomb the world. Like, I feel like she's just sitting there ready to bomb everyone, and she would do it with joy because it would line her pockets. Can't stand Nikki Haley, but I'm so glad that they took her to task on those, and, and Vivek and Ron DeSantis both did it. And I thought an, another part that I, I really enjoyed was the discussion on parental rights. I don't want to talk about Chris Christie too much because I think he's a non-factor, but I think the way that Ron DeSantis took Nikki Haley to task on bathroom bills, on, on protecting women in women's spaces, and protecting children from mutilation. I thought that that was a shining moment for Ron DeSantis, and I think it was really, really devastating for Nikki Haley, at least as it pertains to the more conservative parts of our party. Maybe even ended her based on the fact that earlier in the day we had clips of her saying the very thing that she claimed she did not say. Amazing yeah, how she was able to do that. It is. I mean, it's like she was operating on that stage as if video did not exist, <laughs> yeah. right? She And I have never, and I mean this, I, I, I've never seen a candidate have to walk back what she said more often than Nikki Haley. I mean, how many times on that stage last night did she say, I didn't say that. I didn't do that. We didn't do that. That's not how it happened in South Carolina. I mean, but but the reality is 
is she did say that with, with regards to social media, she said, I want names <laughs> saying that she was essentially going to dox anonymous users on social media. And, and look, the trans issue was so ish, was so interesting about this is that it hasn't been talked about in the debates thus far. And the idea, both, you know, because you said you want to talk about uh, Chris Christie, who I call Garden State Lizzo. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I agree. He's a non he's a non factor. Uh, but the reality is this is an issue that our base cares about passionately in the standard Republican talking points of, oh, well, just the government should stay out of it, which is what Nikki Haley said. It's just it's it's a, it's a position that is that is a non-starter with our base because it's like, well, my child, I would I, my child would like to get wasted and, and fly an airplane while the government should stay out of it. My child would like to smoke marijuana and get a face tattoo. Well, the government should stay out of it. My child identifies as a pirate. So I want the medical community to pop out an eye, cut off a leg, give him a peg leg because that's how he identifies. Well, the government should stay out of it. It's a completely absurd position that it's not, it's not about empowering parents, right? Cause that's not what the core of the issue is about. The core of the issue is about taking power away from the parents and empowering these school boards and these school districts to keep secrets, gender identity secrets from parents. It's it's a, it's a completely ridiculous. I mean, look, down is up, up is down, up is down in this world that we live in today. But both those answers from both Nikki Haley and Chris Christie, to me, I, I it makes them DOA in a Republican primary for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, I think Ron DeSantis had an excellent night last night. I think his best debate by far. I think he's coming off of a high of that disastrous Gavin Newsom debate. Disastrous for Gavin Newsom, not Ron DeSantis. But I think he came off a high of that. And I think that last night he was ready to fight and he was ready to land punches. He's been a little bit more timid in the past at other debates, taking shots more at the left rather than his fellow, you know, his fellow competitors on the Republican side. But last night I thought he did a fantastic job. I thought he got his points across. And while everybody else in that stage, even Vivek can pontificate about what they would would do and all the great things that they would do, Ron DeSantis again could stand there and say, I did all those things that you guys have thus far just talked about. So I think this is going to be um, hopefully a trend for Ron DeSantis. And I think his poll numbers hopefully will go up after that performance. What do you think? Is it going to have an impact? We'll see. I mean, look, I, I think of the people on that stage, I believe that Ron DeSantis was a somehow able to stay above the fray um, and that ultimately benefited him. But the reality is those candidates on that stage, I mean, everybody knows I'm a Trump guy. I'm a card carrying lock, stock and barrel Trump guy. I do think that Ron DeSantis was the best governor in America at a time where this country needed him the most. So I'm not all about I, I don't like Republican on Republican violence. I will make exceptions occasionally for for Chris, Chris for Chris Christie and, <laughs> uh, and other neocons whose foreign policy views that I despise. Uh, but but I think the reality is, is that in order for somebody like Ron DeSantis or, or Nikki Haley to win this primary, they had to move the ball down the field quite a bit in this debate. And at the end of the day, I don't think that anyone on that stage did enough to do that to catch President Trump, who is ahead by 50 points and not just one poll. All right, I want to I I take you to task on that just a little bit. Sure. So 
I remember sitting there in 2015 and 2016 when they said that Trump had no shot. I remember on election night 2016, they said Trump had no shot. Hillary is so far ahead. So I would feel like a hypocrite sitting here today saying Donald Trump is ahead by 45 gabillion jillion points. Mega. He's winning this thing. He's going to win California. Hell, New York. He's going to take it all. I would feel like a moron if I said that because I don't believe that the polls are accurate that Trump is ahead by that much. I believe that he is ahead. But I don't believe by that much. So do, do you really think that he's got this thing, just lock, sock, barrel in the bag? He's going to be our nominee. He's going to be the next president. I'm a, a little bit more hesitant. Well, I, I would I would offer that the, that that it's not necessarily an analogous comparison because Hillary Clinton uh, general election polls are very different than primary polls. And no polls had Hillary Clinton up by 30, 40, sometimes 50 points in, in a primary in a caucus state. So th it's not necessarily analogous, although I do share your general distrust of the polling because it's just been so horrible and off in the past. What I look at um, is trends. And when you see pollsters, uh, typically like even like Trafalgar uh, and other pollsters that that they're kind of aligned in a lot of these caucus states. It's it's hard to ignore the trend that that Donald Trump is ahead and his lead has grown substantially after the weaponization of the DOJ, try to throw the guy in jail, try to basically co-opt his company name, destroy his family legacy. Americans and especially Republicans, they despise that. Uh, but they like an underdog. And I think that dynamic has given President Trump, even though he's running as an incumbent with a record, it's given the it's given him the ability to run as an outsider again. And that's really his sweet spot. So I, while I don't necessarily trust one singular poll, um, I do look at trends. And to me, I, look, like I told you, I, I'm a Trump guy. Uh, but but yeah, I, to answer your question directly, I, I think that I think that Trump is going to win in every single May. I don't, I don't think any other candidate has a path. And I'm not just saying that as somebody who who is a Trump guy. If I thought he was at risk in other caucus states, I would certainly say so. But I, I think Trump is running away with this thing. I think Ron DeSantis wins Iowa. I do. I think the endorsement. That's a bold prediction. No, I That's believe he, I believe he wins it because he spent time there. I believe he wins it because the governor that is that is loved, beloved in that state has endorsed him. A lot of the personalities that speak right to the conservative base in Iowa have supported Ron DeSantis. So I believe Ron DeSantis takes Iowa. Now, other people have taken Iowa, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to win and be the nominee, but I do believe he wins Iowa. Uh, I want to play another clip from last night, though, because as much as I don't like Chris Christie, I'm wondering if you think he might have had even a small point when it comes to the other candidates and how they're afraid to come after Trump directly. Let's take a listen, and then I want your thoughts. The question was very direct. Is he fit to be president or isn't he? The rest of the speech is interesting, but completely non-responsive. And if we were in a courtroom, they'd strike the answer and say, Governor DeSantis, no, they you're would. a smart, they would say that you're they, a smart they would man. Argue that the, no, they would. No, they wouldn't, They would Chris. strike the answer no, they because you're not answering you it. Is he fit? Like, you is have he your, fit? You have no. your thing. Is he you fit or isn't he? No, I don't have my thing. We don't, He's the thing. Is he do fit or isn't he? Do you're talking about him being 80 years old. It doesn't mean that somebody could get elected. That's not the people that is he fit or isn't So it got a little wild there. But I do think that Chris Christie might make a decent point in that the other candidates are afraid 
of directly taking on Trump. Now, in some cases not, but in, in, in others, especially talking about his four indictments and what that means, or if any of them they believe are legitimate, I think that they are maybe slow walking their answers on that. What are your thoughts? Do they need to take him on more directly as Chris Christie has done? I, I, I don't think so. I think if you're going to run against Donald Trump, you have to do it in a very specific way, because regardless of how people feel about Donald Trump, he is the unquestioned leader of the Republican Party and enjoys enjoy 80, 81 plus percent approval in the Republican Party right now. I, I actually think Ron DeSantis handled that question in, in a very, very good way. And and, and, and like I th- and I think the reason is that the American people don't like the, the the basis of the actual question. Is President Trump fit to serve or not? Essentially trying to say he's too old. I like Ron DeSantis's answer on that because it's like, look, yeah, President Trump is old, but I represent the next generation of American leader. When President Trump takes office, he's going to be old. By the end of those four years, he's going to be older. Father time is undefeated, is what Ron DeSantis said. So he was able to answer that question and embrace, you know, hey, look, maybe it's time for the next generation of Republican leader to step in uh, and without taking the bait of saying that. Yeah, President Trump is unfit, essentially lumping him in with uh, who is clearly cognitively impaired, Joe Biden. So I actually I I actually like that Ron DeSantis stood his ground on that question. I didn't think it was Mm -hmm. fair of Governor Christie to say that President Trump is is essentially unfit to serve because it's clearly not true. The American people know that. I mean, you see Donald Trump go from one rally from 10,000 people to be in the court with Letitia James, being attacked by Judge Ngoron, going down to Georgia with Fannie Willis, Mm -hmm. doing fundraisers at Mar-a-Lago. So the guy, you know, everybody ages differently. And I do like that Ron DeSantis stood his ground on that. So question for you. You said that you're a Trump guy. You want Trump to be our nominee. I have to ask you, if it were between Trump and Ron DeSantis, why would you pick Donald Trump over Ron DeSantis? The four indictments aside, just candidate to candidate, why would you choose Trump over DeSantis? Uh, It's a great question. And I think the reason is, is I believe that this country uh, both entrenched bureaucrats, call call in the deep state, call them whatever you want. I believe this from the moment that Donald Trump came down that escalator, he was attacked on all sides by by Republicans, by Democrats, by entrenched bureaucrats who trotted out two impeachments that not, we now know were based on hoaxes. The Russian laptop that 51 intelligence officials said was Russian disinformation, uh, the the Mueller probe, the, the fake January 6th committee. They did everything that they could to steal four years of this man, uh, four, four years of this man's presidency. And despite that, despite that withering resistance that Trump faced on the left and some of some of which that resist some of that resistance came from his own party he was able to accomplish more things during that four year period than I ever thought possible and I mean not the least of which is the Abraham Accords all my life people have been saying boy there could be peace on earth if we struck a peace in the Middle East well Donald Trump came pretty darn close to doing it with the Abraham Accords within the first couple of years of Donald Trump's presidency this country was energy independent for the first time in my entire lifetime we saw that reflected in gas prices and in the cost of food um he did so many great things for this country and I feel like he deserves another four years to make good in the promises that maybe mm. he he hasn't gotten the ball across the goal line yet. So four more years. Let's see what he has to accomplish. I think he's earned it. And and we'll see. We'll Ultimately, we'll see what happens. Right. I guess here's my thing on it. I think Donald Trump had a fantastic first term as president. I supported him wholeheartedly in 2016, 
wholeheartedly in 2020. My tweets were some of the last tweets that he retweeted before he was kicked off of Twitter. <laughs> Obviously, I'm a big Trump supporter, always have been. However, it's not enough for me to say that he deserves another four years because I don't think he can get another four years. So that's my first issue. My second issue is this. Undoubtedly, he had a fantastic first term. But my concerns are that Trump has, unfortunately, what I believe to be his Achilles heel is that he puts people in positions or he favors people who simply say nice things about him. Now, at first, I didn't think much of it. But then when I looked at all of the people that he appointed into high positions and all those people that ended up being trash concerned me. Last week, when he says that he has support for BLM, that concerned me. When he thinks that Gavin Newsom did a fantastic job on the debate stage against Ron DeSantis, that concerns me because it tells me that his ego might be a prevailing notion over the American people. And that is my biggest concern about Trump as it stands in 2023. Do you not share some of the same concerns? Well, I think if, if you're talking about winning an election, you see Donald Trump beating Joe Biden in poll after poll. Sean, the but Democrats I don't want to hear believe- that because I don't want to hear that, though, because that's 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 polling that Trump is going to win five out of six swing states. So, but then but then the other polls say that if Trump is convicted on even one of the four, 50 percent of Americans will not vote for him. So I want to hear just polls be damned how you think he can actually win. And a better question if it was rigged in 2020, why would it not be rigged in 2024? Okay, so hang on a minute. Let's say, okay, so let's not trust polls. Let's look at how the Democrats are reacting. They see Joe Biden as a five alarm fire. They're seeing the polls, their internal polls as well. They know that Joe Biden can't beat Donald Trump. They know it, which is why they're trying to, which is why Gavin Newsom is out there running a shadow campaign right now. I mean, the Democrats know this. Some of the most prominent members of the party have spoken out about you know, David Axelrod being one of them, saying that maybe Joe Biden should graciously step down and let somebody else take the flag of the Democrat Party, because if the election were held today, Donald Trump would clearly win. And so as far as as far as Donald Trump, you know, accepting accepting support from people winning elections, especially as a Republican, is you do those things through addition not subtraction. I, so I don't want BLM. You- I don't want BLM support, Sean, because I saw what BLM did to our country for an entire summer plus burning down our city. So the fact that one dude went on Fox and Friends and said that he would maybe vote for Donald Trump, if that's enough to make Donald Trump say that he supports BLM, I'm really concerned about that. So maybe so, but you want so Donald Trump right now is looking at getting somewhere somewhere between seventy percent and twenty percent of Black American support. No president in this country has gotten that since Gerald Ford. I mean, that would be a a statistically significant number, potentially outcome determinative for President Trump in the general election. So to alienate a, a community that's trending in his direction would be foolish at this point, because again, Donald Trump is running a general election Sean, campaign. Sean, though, but well, we, that's well, identity this, politics. Though. That's ide- I hate that on the Republican side. Why are we playing? identity politics. We have to kiss BLM's ass because we want the black vote. I mean, I just, I have to wholeheartedly reject that. 
That's not what's happening. I mean, you had somebody go on Fox and Friends who is a member of Black Lives Matter and say, I'm done with the Democrats. They've done nothing for our party. I'm going to support Donald Trump. It would be foolish for Donald Trump to spurn that endorsement. It's just what is not playing identity politics. It's bringing as many people into your tent as humanly possible, especially in swing states where Republicans have a very distinct registration, voter registration deficit to Democrats. And, and but to your point where I do agree with you, what Donald Trump can do better is is hiring the right people to advance an agenda. If 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 you could be a Monday morning quarterback and look back on his first presidency, go back and fire the top 20 people at every government organization in Washington, D.C., and, and appoint and, and put in those positions, lock, stock and barrel, card carrying conservatives who are true believers in this country. I think that he would have been able to advance his agenda in a much more effective way. But the, but the reality is, is that Donald Trump, his entire life was a New York state businessman that worked with by and large Republicans and Democrats to get the job done. The vast majority of the people he worked with in New York City were Democrats. So I think Donald Trump thought in good faith that, hey, OK, uh, the election's over, beat Hillary Clinton, beat a, beat a Bush in the same election cycle, which is no small task, by the way. I'm president of the United States. Clearly, people are going to get behind me now. And that wasn't the case. And so I think he's learned a lot from then until now. And I, I know for a fact that his campaign is lining up people that are, are truly patriotic Americans to fill those spots when he wins in 2024. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would agree with you that that you know, the first go around, he could have hired some better people. Oh, I wish I had longer to go into this because I have to have you back because there's a <laughs> lot of things I didn't even I didn't even get a chance to go into COVID, which is uh, to me, BLM and COVID, two things that I really want to address with you when it comes to Donald Trump. But I'm going to have to have you back because I don't have that much <laughs> more time. But I, ho I hope you do come back because I think this could be a very um, invigorating debate. So please come back. Anytime. Thank you for taking the time. And I do hope <laughs> to see you soon. You're so welcome. I'll come back anytime. Thanks so much, Sean. All right. Don't forget to check out the new Outkick store when you can and find all your Outkick swag. And for a limited time, we will receive buy one, get one 50% off at checkout. All you have to do is visit shop.outkick.com. Folks, we are closing in on the end of the week, and you know what that means. It's time for some final thoughts and my losers of the week. It was yet another buck wild week in the world of politics and with so many losers to choose from, selecting these top three was no easy task, but someone had to do it. First up, Democrat Congresswoman Jasmine Crockett, who, while at a House Oversight Committee meeting earlier this week, went full Hillary Clinton. Take a listen. In fact, Ms. Perry, I know your organization, the Heritage Foundation, loves Texas. Ooh, they love Texas. They always sending us some nonsense bills um, that somehow set this country on the wrong trajectory. They send them to Texas. They send them to Florida. Every deplorable state that we can think about, they usually come in out of y'all's think tank. So not unusual for a Democrat to dump on entire conservative states such as Florida and Texas. That happens all the time. Also not unusual for a Democrat to use the word deplorable to describe constituents of states like Florida and Texas. But here is the kicker. Jasmine Crockett, she represents the 30th Congressional District of Texas. Yes, folks, she seemingly finds her own state, the state that elected her to be deplorable. So... I rest my case. But speaking of Democrats who hate Florida and Texas, after last week's devastating debate performance, California Governor Gavin Newsom is back hard at work destroying his state. Drugs, 
homelessness and lawlessness flourish in Newsom's California, but instead of addressing those perhaps more pressing and consequential issues, Gavin has turned his attention to toy aisles. Yes. In just a few weeks' time, retailers in California could be fined up to $500 if they fail to have a gender-neutral section. This applies to stores with 500 or more employees that have children's items or toys. Well, at least you'll know where to find the junk-tucking swimmer, I suppose. But I want to put this in perspective for y'all. So this law, um, retailers may be fined up to 500 bucks for not having a gender-neutral toy section. But thanks to California's felon coddling policies, you could actually steal up to $450 more than that. It would still be considered a misdemeanor. California has de facto legalized shoplifting, but has criminalized separate toy aisles for boys and girls. Gavin out there saving the world one Walmart toy aisle at a time. But sticking with inconsequential BS virtue signals, my final honoree this week is climate czar John Kerry for many reasons. Now, while he was just one of the many losers at this week's climate conference in Dubai, there was an unexpected voice of reason. Whoever farted, take a listen. Because I do not understand how adults who are in position of responsibility can be avoiding responsibility for taking away those things that are killing people on a daily basis. Mm. And, and the reality is that... Um Saved by the bell. You know, of all the hot air in that room, the mysterious fart is by far the least egregious. Now, we don't know who did it, but my money is on Kamala Harris. She cannot cut the mustard, but I'd venture to guess she can cut the cheese. Those are my losers of the week from Nashville. God bless and take care.